Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. This is the Skeptics Bible Project. Happy to be with you again today. How are you, Ben? I'm doing great, John. How are you? I'm good. So last time on the show, we have been going through Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict and uh, breaking down his argument. Now, we're not using the full 800-page book. We're going through his um, talk that he gives you know, around the country, around the world. He's been giving for probably over 30 years. It hits the, the core points of the book. Uh, so far, his claim has basically been the general public doesn't have a correct view of how we got the Bible. And then he makes a lot of arguments about the reliability of what we have, that the, the way it was transmitted and copied did not divert from the original so we can have a high degree of confidence that what we have now is what the original authors wrote. And we broke down some of those arguments and um, tried to pick them apart a little bit. And then um, he got into, toward the end, this argument that even if we didn't have any manuscripts of the New Testament, we can still uh, recreate the New Testament just in the uh, quotations from the early church fathers when they were writing their letters and they were quoting these books. And um, Ben and I were making the case that this is nonsensical because um, even if that is true, uh, if you don't have the Bible that we have now, um, you wouldn't know what to include and not to include because the early church fathers quote a lot of things. They quote a lot of things that are considered heretical by modern-day Orthodox Christians, and uh, they quote a lot of apocryphal books that are not in the current Bible. So that whole thought experiment kind of fails because if you were trying to recreate the Bible without having our modern Bible, what you would end up with would be something that looks very different than what we have today. And I think we also underline just the fundamental assumption that's incorrect about that, that you can look back with some sort of an eyes that assumes orthodoxy as some sort of a strand that always existed as like the orthodox position. And that's just not the way that history enveloped in the early church. There were a bunch of positions um, and there was a constant refining and even up till you start having the church councils, they were the reason they had these councils is because of doctrinal disputes, because texts seem unclear, because the, uh, people believe different things in different communities. So when you look back, it's not fair to say, well, I'm going to take these guys' position as orthodoxy, because you're looking back with eyes that are only seeing the orthodoxy, and you're not seeing all the other positions that weren't 
decided on yet. Um, so there's like this line of thinking that assumes there's an orthodox position in Christianity, the same way that we assume there's a canon in Christianity. And these things are more ambiguous when you're trying to look at it from a historical perspective. Right. And we don't even know if the, when the early church fathers were quoting things that are now in our Bibles, uh, if they considered those things to be inerrant scripture um, the same way Christians now do. Um, so there's just a lot of problems with this argument. And um, Ben, you brought it to my attention that um, this wasn't Josh McDowell's not the first person to talk about this. Yeah, so I thought this was a, a fascinating claim, so I wanted to kind of dig into it a little bit to see where it came from. And it's, um, unsurprisingly, it's proliferated everywhere online. Um, and uh, so I went to his book and tried to find, and his book is not, great i mean this is just a side comment but his book the sourcing is not super easy to access but it's had metzger as one of the sources so the late bruce metzger um was a super well-respected probably the most well-respected uh scholar of uh ancient greek new testament um so i was surprised that uh, metzger would make the same claim so i looked it up in his book that he co-wrote with bart ehrman um about the text of the new testament um, and I think that it's appropriate to read, um, a long quote and kind of like get the context that Metzger is talking about this, uh, this reconstruction. Um, so he says, besides textual evidence derived from the New Testament, Greek manuscripts, and from early versions, the textual critic has available the numerous scriptural quotations included in the commentaries, sermons, and other treaties written by the early church fathers. Indeed, so extensive are these citations that if all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. Okay, so that's the claim that, uh, that Josh McDowell makes. But let's continue. The importance of patristic quotes lies in the circumstances that they serve to localize and date readings and types of text in Greek manuscripts and versions. For example, since the quotations that... Cyprian, the Bishop of Carthage in North Africa, about A.D. 250, includes in his letters, agree almost always with the form of the text preserved in the old Latin manuscripts, K. Scholars have correctly concluded that this 4th or 5th century manuscript is a descendant of a copy current about 250 in North Africa. So, it, on the one hand, it helps you date when the copies that you have are from. So it doesn't prove anything about the validity of um, whether those copies come from the early text. But let's continue. Occasionally it happens that a patristic writer specifically cites one or more variant readings present in manuscripts existing in his day. Such information is of the utmost importance in providing proof of the currency of such variant readings at a given time and place. So, the quote from the Church Fathers have variants in them. So reconstructing this, uh, this text from the, uh, the Church Fathers is not as simple as just putting together the New Testament. You would have textual variations even in the Church Fathers' day of these texts. Before patristic evidence can be used with confidence, however, one must determine whether the true text of the ecclesiastical writer has been transmitted. As in the case in the New Testament manuscripts, so also the treatise of the Father have been modified in the course of copying. The scribe was always tempted to assimilate scriptural quotations 
in the Fathers to the form of text that was current in the later manuscripts of the New Testament, a text that the scribe scribe might well know by heart. When the manuscript of a father differ in a given passage, it's usually safest to adopt the one of the divergence from the later ecclesiastical text, the Byzantine text or the Vulgate. So you have these textual variants. You have this uh, also compulsion on the part of the church fathers to change texts to the ones that they were the most familiar with or the ones that they knew by heart. So again, not necessarily getting a uh, accurate reading, but it does give you an idea of where they're getting their text from. Is it from the Vulgate? Is it from the Byzantine text? So it's helpful in a historical way, but not in the way that Josh McDowell is using it. Uh, I'm just going to keep going. After the text of a patristic author has been recovered, the further question must be raised of whether the writer intended to quote the scriptural passage verbatim or merely to paraphrase it. If one is assured that the father makes a bona fide quotation and not a mere illusion, the problem remains of whether he quoted it after consulting the passage in a manuscript or relied on his memory. The former is more probable in the case of longer quotations, whereas shorter quotations were often made from memory. Furthermore, if the father quotes the same passage more than once, it often happens that he does so in divergent forms. So, it's not only that you have divergencies within the church fathers themselves, but you have divergencies within a single church father in the way that he quotes passages. And sometimes they're from memory, sometimes they're from consulting a text. So, again... These things may be helpful historically, but not in the way that Josh McDowell is using them. They actually create more doubt um, for the claims that Josh McDowell is making because you don't have a standard text. You don't have an undeviated text. You have a text that has a lot of um, textual variants. This part is very interesting. Despite the difficulties that attend the determination and evaluation of patristic sources, this kind of evidence can be of great importance in establishing the oldest form of the text. And here's where you run into an interesting thing. In Luke 3.22, for example, the great majority of witnesses, starting with P4, indicate that at Jesus' baptism, the voice from heaven proclaimed, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased, in reference to Isaiah 42.1. Other witnesses, however, indicate that the voice instead quoted Psalms 2.7, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. The earliest Greek manuscript to record the words of this latter form is the 5th century, Codex Byzi. But the text is also quoted numerous times in patristic sources from the 2nd to 4th centuries, including Justin, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Methodist, the Gospel according to the Hebrews, the Gospel according to the Ebionites, and the Didascala. I don't know if I pronounced that right. I have no idea. In all these cases, it is the alternative form that found in, that's found in the Codex Byzi that is quoted. That means that with the exception of P4, all of the surviving witnesses of the 2nd and 3rd centuries appear to have known this alternate form of the text. Now, why is that interesting? Because Luke 3.22 was an adoptionist text. That's the text that they hinged on that Jesus was adopted at his baptism— As God's son, today I have begotten you. So there was a whole heresy in the early church based on that reading of that text. And the later reading of the text that we see that's that's in all the later witnesses, or all the witnesses that are later than that earlier proclamation in the church father, um, 
have it the other way because it was most likely changed into that other way because adoptionism was considered a heresy. So Josh McDowell's uh, reliance on the Church Fathers doesn't help his argument that the text is easily reconstructed because it's reconstructed with a lot of problems. It creates even more problems because more textual variations are created because of the Church Father. The church fathers, they're not necessarily reliable scribes. They're sometimes going by memory. And then the reality is that some of the earlier readings create even more problems for Josh McDowell's conventional orthodoxy. Yeah, thank you, Ben. That's That was really enlightening. And I think that it also goes to show that today, scholars are still trying to recreate the Bible, trying to recreate what the original said, and they don't have confidence that they're able to do it. There's a reason why people to this day are debating if giant sections of 1 Corinthians are interpolations or not interpolations, meaning added later after the fact. And it's the same thing for the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. We simply don't know. And um, yeah, it undercuts Josh McDowell's argument because like, he does what a lot of apologists do. Well, they'll take uh, the work from scholars like Bruce Metzger and they'll use it in a way that Bruce Metzger did not intend and is invalid. I mean, it's not a good argument. It does not support what he's trying to do there. Um, And I think, you know, breaking it down from the different angles we have uh, shows that. And it shows the difference between honest scholarship. Bruce Metzger is a believer. He believes in the same... uh, He believes in the same Jesus as Josh McDowell. He was a a believer. But as a believer, he had the honesty as a scholar to actually lay out what scholars think, like why this is a problem, why it is interesting, what it means to the study of the historical text. But that's not the way Josh McDowell is using it. And Josh McDowell is not embracing any of the conclusions that Metzger is drawing from this. this. He's just pulling it out of context. And I feel like that shows a real dishonesty. Yeah, I mean, um, if you notice on this show... We have we tend to have a problem with apologists, but we don't have a problem with scholars. Bruce Metzger is a was a Christian scholar, and we use him all the time on this show and other Christian scholars. Um, if you're if you're taking an honest uh, academic approach to approaching the text, like we will take it seriously and um, and analyze the arguments and uh, profit from the arguments. But what Ben I think is trying to say is that what uh, Josh McDowell is doing. It's really uh, an effort of um, apologetics, and it's dishonest because, like we said, he's taking an argument that um, scholars have used based on like a lot of research that research that Josh McDowell himself didn't do. He's he's finding he's getting it from other scholars, and then twisting it to people that don't know better, people sitting in pews that want to believe that are totally biased in favor of Josh McDowell saying this is evidence that supports the historicity of the Bible. And um, it's not honest that he's not giving them the actual conclusions that the scholars reached on the same evidence. And I think it becomes problematic because it's a way to teach people to learn. That's just not the way to learn. Like you don't, you can make an argument for your position that is totally false, but can, can beat someone who knows less in an argument that doesn't make your position true. And I think that, just picking a position and then trying to formulate an argument to justify that position is not that I think that that methodology is what John and I have the biggest critique for. I think that you need to start um, with an open examination of of data 
an open examination of, of what's there, and then you can draw conclusions. But you can't just – the goal is not to make an argument for or against um, a position based on that position. It's to look at what's actually there and figure out what's true. And Josh McDowell's whole thing is formulated on this whole rhetorical device of just making an argument to confirm what believers already believe. And so it's like I can go out into the world now and proclaim my belief – and think that it has uh, validity because this guy told me that it's historical. And um, if you spoke to a real um, scholar, Josh McDowell would not stand a chance against a real biblical scholar in, in any type of debate. They would uh, Even a Christian biblical scholar would reject the conclusions that he's drawing from this data. Yeah, I think that um, what you just said is totally true. When I was in the church... Um, and I started to become more skeptical, it was brought to my attention that I'm doing it backwards, that what I'm doing is trying to start from the bottom to look at the evidence and see where the evidence leads me. But what I should be doing, and this is pre very presuppositional, is assuming the truth of the Bible, assuming the inerrancy of Scripture, and then working and working that way. And so they, they told me that my methodology, which is really, I think, the scientific method, was backwards. And their methodology, which presupposes what they already believe before they start, which I say is confirmation bias, I say that that's backwards. And what I think is ironic about this is that Josh McDowell's entire, entire premise with this book is that he did the scientific method. He's saying, I didn't believe this stuff at all, and I, I went out to investigate it and travel around the world so that I could disprove it. But in studying the evidence, it changed my mind, and uh, it made me a believer. If you read the history of um, Josh McDowell's education and when he became a Christian, it doesn't work out into um, this testimony that he gives. But it's the same testimony that he's been given, you know, traveling around the world for 50 years now. Um, giving this same, basically the same speech, and um, I'm just not buying it. These guys ultimately they're selling books. They're making a lot of money. Um, these are like you know major bestseller books, um, and I think we have to keep that in mind here as we go forward. Yeah, I mean, if you think that Christians would never falsify evidence to make a case, I've got a bunch of uh, early Christian gospel writers that would like to have a conversation with you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that's totally true. And I think that, you know, the thing that shows it most clearly is that Josh McDowell read the same four paragraphs out of Metzger's book that I read, if he's doing any type of honest scholarship, but he wrote, read enough to pull the quote out. Um, So he had to know the context and that he was also bastardizing the context. So... Um, as a true student of the Gospel of Matthew, I guess it doesn't really matter. Um, but I think that it's extremely dishonest um, to pull something out of a scholar's work and to use it. And this is the kind of stuff, I don't want to go on a tangent, but this is the kind of stuff that the uh, Creation Research Institute does all the time, where they'll post a scientific article and then uh, pull one one sentence of the article out and then have a bunch of creationists like draw their own conclusions that are totally opposite of what the scientists actually say and it's totally dishonest it's no I, th I think that's a great example the um i mean like evidence that demands a verdict and the institute for creation research and answers in genesis and all these um really ministries they're not subject to peer review um so they can just 
pull out whatever they want and uh, have it try to support their underlying argument without having anyone able to like critique it. Um, and that's the frustrating thing. And that's why I think what we're saying is like we tend to gravitate toward um, scholarly works and, and papers and get our information from that. Otherwise, uh, you're just getting it from ba- what's basically a non-expert and a person that at all costs wants you to believe, literally at all costs. There, I mean, that's their goal. And I don't think people have the critical skills, or have been taught the critical skills to evaluate the stuff that they're bombarded with in this, this like evangelical bubble because it doesn't even take a peer review. All you have to do is read their articles and follow the citations and go to the scientific articles that they're posting. And you'll see that the scientists are not saying the same thing they're saying. They're completely saying something totally different. So, you know, um, saying that one a scientific theory on how the Grand Canyon formed proves the flood it are two totally different things. Like the, the scientific theory on how the Grand Canyon formed can change or adapt, or there can be two different theories, but it doesn't mean that the flood is the cause of it. Right, and if you were to... And there's no evidence that the flood the flood caused it. That no. Actually, the scientific evidence is against any large water um, deposit. They At one point, they thought there was a lake that helped like speed erosion, and now that, that theory has basically been rejected because it doesn't look like there was any large body of water there. So the article that they were using... I mean, I, I don't want to go on a tangent about this, but that's an example. Like They don't expect people to even look at the scientific articles that they are using as sources... And the fact that, like, the last six sources of the article are all from the Creation Institute itself. Yeah, and I think this just underlines, like, what our overall criticism is of uh, of not just Josh McDowell in this book, but also um, apologetics in general. Like, typically speaking, these people are not talking to um, academics or non-believers. They're talking to believers. And most of this stuff is good enough for... You know, people sitting in the pew that don't really want to spend the time researching anything. They just want something to hang their hat on to say, yeah, there's evidence for it. Read this book, which is, I think, what both Ben and I have experienced in the church growing up is that, uh, and I've said this on previous episodes, that when, uh, if you are to question a lot of Christians on on evidence on or reasons to think any of this is true, oftentimes they just say, oh, here's a book to read. And many times that book is evidence that demands a verdict, which is exactly why we're uh, talking about it now. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so, I, I mean, this was a long intro, um, but I just wanted to really like problematize some of the things that he said already. And even just the overall, like, this is what you should do when people make claims like this is like examine like where they're actually getting these claims from um because a lot of times even if the claims about the papyrus documents um some of the dating methods are like are like true in a sense usually it's more complicated than the way that the person is portraying it right and there's real scholarship i mean that's the other thing i think that we're saying is if your pastor wants to talk about history, then he shouldn't read some polemic written by a Christian historian or a Christian quote historian. Um, and Because there are actual Christian historians who are like historians who happen to be Christians. Um, and I want to differentiate between the two. But like read a book by an actual historian. But like don't rely on your pastor's view of history because I'm, I think most of the time they are reading some non-expert historian. Like, 
people should rely on people that study this stuff as their expert as their area of expertise i think that's like something that we we say when it comes to science i think it's something that we say when it comes to um the biblical texts if you want to understand them historically don't get the history from your pastor go like study like what go watch the yale videos online yeah i mean i think a good example is um uh jewish historians were the were the first ones to say um, there never was a historical Moses, and there never was an Exodus out of Egypt. Um, that didn't come from a bunch of you know Bible-hating atheists. These were Jews and talking about their own sacred text. And I think that's the same type of scrutiny that um, anybody should have. You should be willing to go wherever the evidence goes. Um, we've been talking a lot about this. So I'm kind of recapping last week, and um, obviously we have more to say. Josh McDowell continues on here. I will play some more clips. that He's, I think, still talking about, um, kind of concluding his argument about the um, early church fathers quoting the, uh, the entire New Testament within their quotes. So let me, let me continue with that. Much of the original, you don't even have to have a Bible or a transcript. And uh, that is mind-blowing to me. And so, time-wise and number-wise, <laughs> the Bible stands alone. Now, it doesn't mean it's true, but I think it does mean this, that what we have today is what was written down. Okay, there's his point right there. Well, at least he says it. It doesn't mean that it's true, which is, you wouldn't have gotten that unless you listened to the first 30 minutes of his of his opening, because everybody sitting there probably thinks, oh, this this means that the Bible is true. Um, but there he says, no, it doesn't mean the Bible is true, but what it does mean is that we, it means it's what it was originally written down. And, um, I don't want to like rehash this too much. We just talked about it a lot. But yeah, I, I think like we, we talked about this before and I don't want to belabor the point, but like, it was a weird place to start the argument to prove that we have the originals. If the originals are not even true accounts. It seems to me you would start with proving that they're true accounts and then go to, and we also have the originals. But but I um, think the argument that he's making here seems to be, um, we know that what the original thing, whoever wrote the original documents, we know that what we have now is accurate because the early church fathers quote it. But we, we just read to you is quotes from the actual scholars that say, no, what we have from the early church fathers is actually coming from different manuscripts and there's variants all over the place. So you have the exact same problem that you have with the manuscript tradition itself. Yeah, the Church Fathers only, I mean, only their original documents would have the the scripture that they wrote down. And like we said, there's even problems with that because a lot of times they were reciting from memory or not necessarily. Um, or when they quoted passages, they quoted it different, different times. Um, so, I mean, I think what John said in the previous episode, though, is really true, that... Um, this reconstruction only gets us to what documents we have. So that's the earliest iteration that we can possibly reconstruct to. And even that's an assumption. But like we can only reconstruct back to whatever the earliest text that we have says. Um, that's the absolute earliest date. And there's a lot of time between that and when the document is written where right. changes were happening. Right. So that ambiguous space where we don't know what's happening with the text, is why we know that we don't have the original text. Exactly. And, and I think that, um, you know, 
people that study the early church fathers and, and their quotations, I think it's, it is one of the most fascinating things you can do. So we're not discounting that line of studying. But when you study it, what you find is like uh, the massive amount of diversity in beliefs from the early church. Um, you don't find some kind of like unified orthodox vision that never changed from the beginning. You find heresies, you find confusion, you find ambiguity. Um, and the earlier you go, the more of this you find, which again, I think completely cuts against the argument that he's making. Yeah, every claim that he makes is only true at the most superficial level, if it's true at all, because everything is much more complicated than what he's making it seem. The writers of the New Testament, they wrote as eyewitnesses or they recorded eyewitness accounts. You say what? They wrote as eyewitnesses or like Luke, they recorded eyewitness accounts. I believe Matthew, Mark, and John are eyewitnesses. Luke is not. Luke recorded eyewitness accounts uh, for Theopolis. And see, what they did in those days is often a man would hire a scribe, a scholar, a researcher to research out. It wasn't just like people do today. And it looks like Theophilus had hired Luke to uh, study everything carefully that had happened. So what do you think, Ben? Should we do about 20 episodes on this? Because <laughs> this is a subject that uh, both me and you have already talked a lot about on this show. And it really gets to the heart of Josh McDowell's argument and many Christian apologists' argument. Um, and there are just so many problems. Just when he's saying these like short sentences, um, like the alerts, like red alerts are going off all over the place for me. I don't know about for you. Yeah, I mean, we should at least, like, we don't have to necessarily go in depth, but we should just say the way that he's wrong already. So I think his first claim is that the Gospels are written by eyewitnesses or the testimony of eyewitnesses. Um, exactly. He says he believes that Matthew, Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, and John are eyewitnesses and that Luke recorded eyewitness testimony. Right. He's saying that uh, Matthew, Mark, and John are eyewitnesses. I just want to say right off the bat, there are no New Testament scholars that I know of that agree with this. I mean, this is not at all what is taught at any um, seminary or within New Testament studies at any university that I know of. Um, and the reason is, is the synoptic problem, because... If you are saying that Matthew is an independent witness, the biggest problem you have is then, well, why is he quoting Mark word for word um, through the entire book? The other problem is Matthew, the, the Gospel of Matthew, um, does not claim to be written by an eyewitness. Um, so that right there is a huge problem. The Gospel of Mark, which is the what scholars believe to be the first Gospel written, also does not even claim to be written by an eyewitness. So neither does John. So what you have is... And we don't even know the names of the people that wrote these books, too. They also don't have names attached. Exactly. So the these names, names are later interpolation. We don't know Mark who Mark is. We don't know Mark wrote Mark. It never says this is Mark who wrote this. Right. We know the beloved disciple claims to be... Uh, that's a more complicated problem. The beloved disciple and the mm -hmm. Gospel of John are connected... And um, none of the other Gospels have names on them. 
Yeah, we can. Uh, we can. We've talked a lot about this in other episodes, and uh, we can talk about it some more. But yeah, the the names um, didn't appear on the Gospels for uh, probably two or three centuries. Um, they were being circulated um, orally or in as manuscripts um, without a name on them. And See, like I, I said, I didn't want to interrupt. I, I'm fascinated. Um, by you laying out the synoptic problem. But I just wanted to like throw that further ambiguity. Like we don't even know who wrote these gospels because they don't have names attached. Right. And that's important to his argument because his argument is saying like these were written by eyewitnesses, which is just so dishonest um, because it's almost certainly not written by eyewitnesses um, because even there's clues in the text as to when they were written um, Mark being the earliest was probably written around AD 70, right around the time where the very last disciples of Jesus were dying off. Um, so they weren't even, you know, there were probably some still alive, but I don't think they were writing gospels and they certainly weren't highly literate, um, Greek speaking, um, authors. Um, so, so this idea that we can have some high degree of confidence that they were written by eyewitnesses, or as he says of Luke, um, the testimony from eyewitnesses, which is a whole nother problem, which we'll get into. Um, it's just completely dubious and um, totally dishonest to ignore the mountain of scholarship that people that have devoted their lives to studying the Bible and researching the history, and for him to go up there um, knowing full well that this is the case. I mean, if he did any studying, like he says, I studied it and I went around the world, um, then the you know he would go to uh, you know scholars and I don't know if he didn't go to the scholars or if he just decided to ignore them, um, but it's completely dishonest in my view. Yeah, I mean this is the absolute base level textual criticism that you can do. Get a um, synoptic parallel. Look at any passage. Read Mark, and then read Matthew and Luke. Side by side. That's like the base level textual criticism that you'll do. And what you will see, certain words are almost copied exactly all through three. All three, Like the base of the story in Mark is copied through all three uh, books. Like word for word. Yeah, like exact same words. Like the description is exactly the same. And then you have exaggerations in Matthew and exaggerations in Luke. And a lot of times what you have is different exaggerations that don't fit together. Right. That cause problems in the stories. You have exaggerations. That shows you the synoptic problem because you have a source and then you have two people taking that source and developing their own. Now it's further complicated. I mean, Luke had probably other sources. It's not, doesn't mean that everything that Luke said is made up. Matthew may have had other sources, but the thing is there's a lot of sources out there at this time because it's oral traditions, a lot of this stuff. So, and there may have been other gospels that they were using. I mean, Luke claims to have read all the other gospels and is writing the best gospel. So is he talking about the same gospels we have? Is he reading Matthew and Mark and saying these gospels are not accurate? So even Luke is creating problems for his narrative about all these being historical accounts that we can take as historically accurate. Yeah, he um, talks about um, Theophilus, and he talks about um, Luke claiming that um, he's writing a historical account. That's actually one of my like most fascinating verses um, in the Bible, be- when Luke talks about how many have undertaken to write an account of all these things. Now, under the Christian um, perspective, 
Luke is either the second or third gospel writer. So when he says many have undertaken, well, we know he's talking about Mark because he's using Mark. And what else is he talking about? Well, that shows that there was lots of other gospels that have been lost to history. Because even in Luke's day, he seems to be saying, those people are wrong. I'm going to give you an orderly account. It also is interesting because when Luke changes something that was in Mark, we can say, okay, Luke is saying Mark is wrong and I'm right because he says that at the beginning of his gospel. I'm the one that's going to give you the orderly account. That's always fascinated me. I mean, the gospel of John also gives you clues that it's not eyewitness testimony or that it's not written by an eyewitness because there's two conclusions that are almost identical. And there's a whole thing about the beloved disciple dying, the whole uh, like part at the end where they're, they say, essentially, they give away the clues that the beloved disciple is dead. So he's not writing the book. I mean, the book is, he can't write after he's dead. He's not Moses. Um, <laughs> so I think that um, it, it's just a very dishonest to claim that we know who wrote these books, that the names that are attached to them are the people that actually wrote them, that even if the names are right, that we know anything about Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, I mean, the beloved disciple, we know from what the text tells us. Um, and... And and that we know anything about the person that Luke is writing to, whose name I won't I won't butcher. Like I mean, even that's a like a giant historical conjecture. So none of this stuff. He, and and he even shifts subtly in his language too. He's like, I believe that these are whatever that these are the testimony of eyewitnesses. Yeah. So let me just recap a little bit. When when we're what is the evidence within the text about the authorship um, of the Gospels? Mark, you have no. Um, hint at all. It doesn't say anything about um, who is writing the book or why he's writing the book. Um, Matthew, same thing. Matthew, the the title Matthew was attributed to the disciple Matthew centuries after it was written. Um, Luke, well, Luke basically says, like he like he mentions, hey, I went out and investigated all this stuff that that has happened, and. Um, and a lot of these other Gospels are not uh, very good, so I'm going to write an orderly account of what actually happened. And we know that Luke was written, um, you know, later than Mark, so you you know there really wasn't many eyewitnesses around um, at that point anyway. So you're talking about getting it probably, you know, third hand or, or even more um, by the time it gets to Luke. Um, so that's not very reliable by historical standards. What you have in John in the epilogue is a little um, citation that says, that talks about the beloved disciple, and it says, this is the disciple uh, who testified to these things and wrote these things, and we have every reason to believe him. So the author is saying, um, I got this from the beloved disciple who was an eyewitness. But it's imp- what it's important to realize, though, is John, um, by pretty much like unanimously in scholarship, is considered to be the latest gospel written and in no way written um, during the lifetime of the disciples. So that's uh, super problematic also. Yeah, I mean, none of this reflects any scholarship that's actually done on like the origins and authorship of the gospels. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about uh, Bauckham's book that was recommended to you by people that ended up proving exactly not the point that they were trying to prove. Yeah, I mean, uh, another book that's highly recommended 
um, by Christians all over the place. And most of them have not actually read the book because it's like a really in-depth scholarly work called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Um, and the ironic thing is Richard Bauckham would not agree with, uh, <laughs> with what uh, Josh McDowell is saying here. Um, he basically says his conclusion is that it's ironic that he never talks about Matthew uh, or doesn't talk much about Matthew and Luke. And he says that John is, um, is an eyewitness. This is his conclusion is an eyewitness, but he's not, um, John, the son of Zebedee. Um, he's the, he's the beloved disciple. There was, there was a beloved disciple that, um, was not one of the 12 and that's, uh, where this comes from. But it's important to say, like, Jesus and the eyewitnesses is an extreme minority view. Now, I take him seriously. Richard Bauckham is a very smart guy, and he's a good scholar. But um, it's a minority view. And I think and, he says Mark is based on eyewitness testimony, but not an eyewitness. Yes, exactly. And, and you know, that's, like, less controversial, but you have to start talking about the Q document then. Like, this is just a dishonest take on the, the Gospels. Like, you're not getting into, like, actual scholarship. Like, there's a there's a minority position that Matthew is the earliest gospel that I don't think holds any water really, but there is a position that Matthew is the earliest gospel. But if you're not even going to lay out any of these complications, you're just going to say we know the, who the testimony is. Well, that's just like a position that no scholar would take. Right, and I think what uh, Josh McDowell does in his book, and I'm not sure if he does it here in in his talk, and we'll we'll see as we go along, is. Um, he talks about the testimony uh, in the from the early church fathers to try to connect the gospels that we have now to um, actual people that are mentioned in the gospels. For example, uh, a very common belief is that um, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, was written by somebody named Mark who was a follower of Peter and got all his information from Peter. Now. Um, the Gospel of Mark never says that at all, but I believe it is Papias who says, who talks about Mark in that sense. However, the big problem with that is we have no idea what Gospel Papias is talking about. Because as I mentioned in the last episode, um, the way Papias describes certain events in the Gospels are not at all the way we read them in Mark um, or any of the others. So again, this is just riddled with problems, and um, it, it's it's a giant endeavor, and I'm going to keep saying this over and over, but it's a giant effort of confirmation bias. You want them to be from eyewitnesses, so you try to draw any connection you can make and then claim that that's evidence, evidence that demands a verdict uh, in favor of your, the argument, in favor of the bias that you already had before you even began. And there's like internal. I mean, first of all, every um, almost every scholar agrees that uh, John was written um, twice. That there are two Gospels of John that were combined because there's um, repetition of a bunch of stuff. There seems to be different sources used. There's like uh, geographical footnotes uh, that sort of indicate that different communities in different places had different versions of the text, and there were like notes to explain. Um, different things that were added later. Um, like John said, there was the, the epilogue with the we. Um, and there are also like two endings to the book. And it talks about the beloved disciple dying in the book um, also. So it complicates things about, I mean, they talk about, oh, did Jesus say that the beloved disciple would never die? And they say, he just said, what is it if I willed that he never died? So 
um, that clearly shows that the beloved disciple anxiety about the beloved disciple being dead. And um, so it, it, like real scholarship shows that the claims that he's making are much more complicated. And I think that even claiming these books that attaching them with these names is problematic. Um, and even the most conservative scholar like Bauckham, who's really trying to hold on to eyewitness testimony for the basis of the Gospels, would preclude uh, Matthew and Luke. And then I also think a lot of scholars think Papias is talking about Matthew when he's talking about Mark. Or when he says, you know, Mark is based on Peter, they think he's maybe talking about Matthew. Yeah, so if he's I mean, talking about Matthew, I mean, I don't say that that's the truth. I don't necessarily agree with that. But if, he talk, if he's talking about Matthew, then that complicates things further, too. So everything is compl- more complicated than what Josh McDowell is spoon-feeding these people who don't I mean, really know any better and are going to go out and talk to people on the street who don't know any better either. This is the audience that they're going out to talk to, these people on the street who may or may not have any foundation for their beliefs— um, and their skepticism of the of the text. And I'm not sure, not to undercut everything here, but I'm not even sure where any of this gets you because if you, even if you are to persuade that the Gospels are written by eyewitnesses, which they're not, but let's assume for a second you are, you're still back with what I was saying last time. It's like, okay, well, uh, I mean, we know the Book of Mormon um, came from eyewitnesses and, the, and the, there was eyewitnesses um not like not that long ago that we know who they are um, that claim to see the angel Moroni. And um, there's eyewitnesses that talk about um, being abducted by aliens like that we know that we have on video talking about it, or that you can go and talk to today. And so again, that's as far as it gets you anyway. Like, and what we're saying is like, even if that is a high standard, like it's not even like we we can't even have confidence that they are eyewitnesses and even if you could not really sure where that gets you it's just another claim yeah i mean i think it's important to remember as historical context that may not i mean maybe not everybody watched uh, under the banner of heaven or uh, knows the early history of mormonism but like joseph smith was killed for his beliefs because he claimed to see an angel that gave him golden tablets that contained a gospel to the Americas. Eyewitness killed for his belief, did not recant those beliefs upon death. So just keep that historical context. And this is only 100 years ago. Yeah, and Ben is kind of previewing uh, another argument, a major argument that Josh McDowell makes here. And um, it's one of like the biggest arguments you hear Christian apologists making, Lee, Lee Strobel, um, you know, takes this and runs with it, and many other apologists do. You hear it all the time. So I don't want to get into that now because I want to wait for Josh McDowell to make the case, and then we can get into that. But why don't we move on here? He's still talking about um, the reliability of the Gospels have, as coming from eyewitnesses. So let me continue. Luke starts out his Gospel by saying, I have examined everything carefully from the beginning from those who are eyewitnesses to present to you the exact truth of the things taught among us. So Luke did not write as an eyewitness, but he did record eyewitness accounts. Let me just jump in real quick. We're talking about Luke again. Just keep in mind, he's saying that Luke was this historian that went out to investigate everything. Just keep in mind that I think it's something around the lines of 85% of Mark is contained in Luke. So when Luke says, I went out and interviewed those that were here from the beginning, he's 
he's writing almost exclusively Mark and then just kind of making like some changes and additions. And what he's and the additions that he's adding almost certainly come from a Q document, which is just another sayings gospel. So what Luke is actually doing um, is taking two different gospels, um, mashing them together, and then putting his own spin on it. He's not, it, you, there's not any evidence that he was out writing his own unique document after interviewing people by himself. That claim just falls apart just on the surface alone, just a surface reading of Mark and Luke will get you to that conclusion. Yeah, the events that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Uh, I too decided as one having a grasp on everything from the start to write a well-ordered account for you, most excellent Theopolis. So you may have a firm grasp of the words in which you have been instructed. I mean, so that's the exact, that's the uh, NRSV um, translation at the beginning of Luke. It's a little bit, I mean, I feel like he was paraphrasing. Yeah. Um, and so it's important to just keep in context like what Luke actually says. He's not just saying eyewitness accounts. He's saying also the accounts of those uh, servants of the word. Right. But what we know is what he was using was almost exclusively uh, Mark and Q. Yeah. I mean, I think like that. that's a point we should just belabor because the the closest inspection you don't have to go and read a scholar at all you can do this on your own is to read the words as they are in mark and then read the passage in matthew and in luke and certain words are exactly the same um and if the passage isn't in mark then and it does agree or there are certain words that are the same in matthew and luke that means that came from q so it postulates another document that they're drawing that from. But nobody postulates that Matthew and Luke were eyewitnesses. One of the most critical tests for me is the eyewitness. I mean, here in the New Testament time, the community was the most powerful force to determine truth. Because you see, there were so many people alive who knew Jesus when this was all recorded and written. They, they knew what he said, they knew where he went, what he did. And if they would have ever dared to have added or to have taken away, there were antagonistic people right there at that time to correct them. He's saying that the community wouldn't let somebody get away with altering the text. They were right. there to like uh, correct it. Now, uh, I have so much to say about that. Uh, we could do a whole episode on that. But that's absurd. The amount of diversity we find in early Christianity is off the charts. You have forged letters in the name of uh, Peter, every disciple under the sun, Mary Magdalene, Jesus himself. Um, you have forged documents in the name of Paul, uh, early documents in the name of Paul, some of which are canonized today in our Bible. So the idea that there was some kind of like system of fact-checking and uh, weeding out like uh, false information um, is just completely ridiculous. Also, even in Luke, like we just said before, Luke is saying uh, the other ones, I, I think what you can take from Luke's verse at the beginning that we just read, that Ben just read for you, is that he's saying the other accounts are not orderly, so I'm going to write an orderly account. So I think if there was any like correction that people were doing, the way they did that is by writing a different document that would uh, alter it or even changing it. So there's a lot of evidence, like the Gospel of John comes to mind, where there were verses inserted 
uh, to try to debunk quote unquote heretical beliefs like docetism, like Jesus didn't have a physical body. Oh, okay. Well, it's good because Jesus is walking through the wall. Well, then right after that, we have to have a verse about Thomas sticking his fingers into the wounds of Jesus to, to counteract that uh, heresy. So I just think it's completely bonkers of uh, Josh McDowell to make that case, and it doesn't align at all with what we see in the historical record. Yeah, I have three. I'll try to make them quick points. So the first is, this is a total misunderstanding of the Gospels. Um, The conventional view of historians are the Gospels represent different communities, and um, like geographic, um, different faith beliefs, and you can read the Gospels against each other theologically, because they have different theology. So even just an understanding, a basic understanding of the Gospels by reading closely, you can see that Matthew and Luke are not saying the same thing about a lot of things. That Mark has a very different gospel. Like, you can even just look at the way that Jesus is portrayed. Like, I will, I'm sure we'll do talk about this, but like Jesus, you know, at the Passion is super anxious in Mark. Um, Whereas, like, by the later gospels, Jesus has like no problem and knows like the end is going to happen and uh, like, you know, is totally like confident in going to his death. So it's just like a misreading of the gospels and the conventional view on what the, the gospel writers, which, which is that they do actually represent communities that held different beliefs. Now, the second complication is what John brought up. You have just a proliferation of early Christian documents that have different beliefs so to pretend that it's like, oh, there was like this community of overall orthodoxy that was like ensuring that like no one would ever like change things to like fit their own belief. Totally wrong. Completely wrong. Um, and even the church fathers show us that, that they were like putting their version that they thought was best in the, I mean, like the evidence that he gave before, um, when you examine it closely, disproves his point as well. Another complication is that, the conventional view of co- the community basis of the scriptures is being challenged by um, the scholarship of Robin Faith Walsh, who I talked about be- before. Her book, The Origins of Early Christian Literature, is sort of like setting the um, scholarly world on fire, I would say. A lot of like really influential um, scholars of uh, the New Testament are uh, think her idea is, is revolutionary. And it's sort of like it's a question of the fundamental view that these texts somehow go back to communities. She says these texts are literature that were made by cultural elites, cultural elites. So people were writing competing literature that was passed back and forth amongst the cultural elites. That would be prone to exaggeration, um, based on sources that were not necessarily historical, would conform to certain other cultural motifs that would be comp- uh, competitive in nature. So Luke is trying to outdo his other cultural elites in writing the best gospel of all these ones that are floating around at the time. And um, and then I think there's just like, um, there's a bunch of other early gospels um, we talked about the Gospel of Thomas last time. Um, the I think it's like the Apocalypse of Peter that's pretty early. Um, the Gospel of Peter, I think, is pretty early. I mean, relatively speaking. So all of this is just really complicated by actual history. Yeah, and many of those that you just mentioned, many of those books were considered canon. 
uh, in certain um, groups for a long time before it was considered to be not canon. Some of them were was like, well, this is profitable, but it shouldn't be considered canon. Others were like, no, this is outright heretical. But, um, you know, this was a process that happened over the, of orthodoxy um, establishing itself and and coming down with what we now know as the canon. But that certainly wasn't the case in the time period that Josh McDowell was talking about when the first letters and, and gospels were emerging. Um, there was no, like, big system of checks and balances. And, and I think th- documents like, you know, the Apocalypse of Peter and uh, even the Gospel of Thomas, like, are great evidence against everything he's saying now. And those, go- and those gospels actually have names attached to them. That's I mean, true. they claim to be written in the name of Thomas. They claim to be written in the name of Peter. So again, it's like not like so inconceivable that you would have books that were forged in the names of people claiming to be disciples uh, or claiming to be eyewitnesses or claiming to base it on eyewitness testimony where that's just not a historical claim, where they're just not telling the truth. You have a bunch of other documents that we that Josh McDowell would say, well, those aren't really true. We, of course, we don't believe Thomas wrote the Gospel of Thomas. Well, his methodology doesn't disprove that. His methodology would say we have to take the Gospel of Thomas. Yeah, let me say it even stronger. We know that uh, these documents were forged in the name of these other people. Uh, We know that was like just a practice that was happening all over the place. So again, when you're talking about having some kind of like uh, community of checks and balances to make sure nothing erroneous or an error gets through, it's like that's completely uh, belied by the evidence that shows that there was like an entire... Uh, what's the word, like an entire industry of forging documents in the name of some of the apostles. Um, So I just, again, I just find it, I'm going to say this probably at the end of every clip, I just find it completely dishonest because Josh McDowell has to know this stuff if he studied it. Um, And I think it goes against his entire point that he was just looking at this totally unbiased and uh, from the perspective of a non-believer trying to disprove it. And he just, I guess, never came across any information about apocryphal texts. It's just uh, totally dishonest. And I think, like, the balance is that this has become, like, a go-to source now that people think is historical, Josh McDowell's book. Right. So... It, like it literally just proliferates itself everywhere and people draw this like as if it's like a historical take and it's just not a historical take it's a, it doesn't stand up to any type of historical scrutiny no matter what you think about the, where the gospels come from we know that the early church communities had widely divergent beliefs exactly i think that your analogy earlier about creationism is perfect and i think that's exactly what's going on here it's uh you know if if Christians um, want to research this stuff and they're using Josh, Josh McDowell as their historian, they're basically doing the exact same thing when they want to study evolution, so they go to Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis. It's, um, it's not honest, because Ken Ham is not a historian, and Josh McDowell is not a historian. So um, I just think, uh, you know, like, at the baseline, what I encourage people to do, what I would encourage any Christian that I'm talking to about this stuff, I would say... Please make your case using real science, real history, um, not somebody not somebody who's a pastor making a um, apologetic case because they're not being honest. I'm not saying that all apologists are dishonest, but the ones that we're highlighting here are dishonest. Yeah, and I mean, I think we highlighted in our um, either our intro or outro about the sort of like industry that's been created 
um, for apologetics online. So this uh, the, this real scholarship, it just doesn't have the proliferation um, industry behind it that um, like BS apologetics has. And so when you go online to research this stuff, it's hard to even find real scholarship because a lot of what you get is like the regurgitated arguments that Josh McDowell presents here. And I think that's like also a real problem. Um, and I think that's one that we're trying to counter here. Like you don't have to take our word for this stuff. Hopefully when you go and you'll go and get like a scholarly person like uh, Raymond Brown's books um, and and dive in. And this is why I think that we always give Bart Ehrman so much. Um, I mean, again, he co-wrote that book with uh, with Metzger that was uh, that was basically cited by um, <laughs> by uh, Josh McDowell. Um, so it's not like he's an unreliable scholar. And the one thing that I think that he, the greatest service that he's done is he's sort of proliferated some of these uh, ideas that exist in scholarship. And he's pretty committed to giving you the standard scholarly um, take. So, you know, he'll lay out the different arguments. Um, he'll say what he's convinced by. Um, and he'll say, like, this is basically the the most scholars would hold to this belief. Yeah, I find it one of the biggest frustrations I have is like Google searching some of these topics because you're right. The first like several pages are all apologists. Some of them kind of claiming to be historians when they're really just ap apologists masquerading as historians. So yeah, like I, I'm saying go to the real scholars, but um, really like do your homework because there's a lot of bad information out there. I mean, like for instance... In new, let me just give you one quick example. In New Testament scholarship, it's vir virtually unanimous that the pastoral epistles of Paul are forgeries and were not written by Paul. Pseudopigrapha, if you don't like the word forgery. Um, but if you look up that topic, like who wrote the pastoral epistles, you find the majority of information you find is from Christians and apologists telling you that Paul actually wrote these books. Um, but the people that have actually studied it, that looked at the original languages and the history behind it, many of them are Christian scholars. They um, say in, in unison that, no, these, these books were not written by Paul. So that's just one example. Another frustration I have is anytime, you know, we've actually brought up creation evolution a bunch of times in this episode, but uh, it's the same thing. If you were to search like creation versus evolution, you get the false idea that there is some kind of legitimate debate going on in science. There's no legitimate debate going on in science. There are no biologists that reject um, evolution. I mean, if you can find one, fine. Okay, so it's 99.9% .9 of all biologists and, um, you know, and scientists out there accept evolution, Darwinian evolution. So um, to act like there's like a legitimate debate going on, there's not. And I think it's totally dishonest for people to put this false information out there um, and claiming some kind of authority uh, behind it because it's really doing a disservice to humanity. It is so disproportionate, the amount of power that these people um, wield because online is literally like the terrain of apologetics. Um, and there's just like all, all kinds of churches and pastors that can just like continually proliferate this stuff all, all the time. And real scholarship is taking place like in academia and 
doesn't necessarily have people to decimate disseminate it like a cross line in the same way. And then a lot of like the sort of like skeptical scholarship that you find online is like really not very good. Um, so it relies on a bunch of like false notions too. Um, so there's, so that's why I like Airman because he's relatively accessible and he gives you a pretty good take on what like the scholarly consensus is. Yeah, no, I agree with you about Airman. I think, um, what I like about Bart Ehrman is like he has really in-depth scholarly work, obviously. And he's like a very, I mean, highly respected New Testament scholar. Like the way you hear apologists and pastors talk about him, oh, he's a fringe radical uh, leftist uh, scholar. That's not true at all. I mean, he is basically in, in line with um, the majority of what you know, New Testament scholars say he has a few opinions here and there that are outliers, but that's every scholar. And and like Ben said, he wrote like he studied under Bruce Metzger and they wrote books together. And Bruce Metzger is one of the most respected, you know, Christian uh, scholars out there. The other thing I wanted to say um, is you made an allusion to it um, when it comes to science and evolution. And Christians have this persecution complex, um, pun intended, that like goes back to its earliest days, um, and um, we'll do an episode about early persecution um, sometime in the future. Maybe we'll get to touch on it a little bit later on um, when Josh McDowell goes on. But I wanted to say that because there's this idea that like um, there's this infringement on teaching um, that science is being taught in a biased way in the elementary school, the public elementary schools, or that history is being taught in a biased way in the public elementary schools. And that's true, but it's not true in the way that they think. Science is actually watered down in history textbooks or in science textbooks because of a powerful lobby of right-wing people that want to treat creation myths as if they're science. And um, I don't endorse Jerry Cohn um, entirely because he's a little bit fringy in some of his beliefs but his book um evolution is true why evolution is true why evolution is true is actually a really good book um and he lays that out there's a lobby that actually prevents good science from being taught in the classroom because good science would teach people to think critically and also like overwhelmingly proves evolution beyond the shadow of a doubt yeah, but, and then um, I just wanted to say that the same thing is true of history, and I think you can read the book um, "Lies My Teachers Told Me" by James Lowden, um, Lowen, and um, that gives you an idea of of the way that like right wing forces have crafted the way history is taught in schools. It's not CRT; it's actually um, good, constructive, critical history. A bunch of historical myths are taught of truth, and um, so again. I think that uh, we should, these people that pretend to be persecuted wield an enormous amount of influence through um, money and the strength of their religion in our society. And um, we shouldn't just assume that um, their, their claims about um, these influences on our public institutions are factual at all. So we've gone off on a little bit of tangent, but that's okay because um, it, it is relevant to this ultimately. I think that. Um, you know, when I was in Sunday school growing up, uh, it was taught to me that they, they found Noah's Ark on top of Mount Ararat. And it was taught to me that men have one less rib than women because uh, God took the rib out of man to make women. Of course, both of those claims are completely false. And and the idea that it's the church that's bringing you truth and then they're, they're just okay um, saying these 
um, fictional things that they've heard probably, like they probably believed it too, but it wouldn't be hard to research that. Um, you know, it's, in fact, it's very easy to research these things and these type of lies are still being taught today. And like Ben says, it's really scary when you see um, these bills that are trying to get this stuff actually taught on a public school level. Um, I think this is a good stopping place, though. We're, we're slowly making our way through Josh McDowell's video, and we'll pick it up next time uh, on The Skeptic's Bible Project. Happy Nettle. The Skeptic's Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project and follow us on all social media platforms at Skeptics Project. Got questions or comments? Email us at Skeptics Bible Project at gmail.com. Ooh.